so good morning, good morning. Uh, uh, Jam is running a little bit late, um, so uh, we're going to just uh, kind of start uh, without him, uh, do some intros, uh, and uh, he'll uh, be joining within uh, five minutes or so. So, uh, hello, hello, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Uh, kind of welcome to our first macro space of the year, uh, this time about CPI. Uh, we've been doing these for approximately six months now, so uh, it's exciting uh, to start the new year with some familiar faces. I'm Unusual Wills, and uh, we're really happy to have everyone on board today. Uh, Nicholas will be discussing uh, and conducting the discussion today, so let's begin. Good morning, everyone. As always, super excited to have all these speakers here and speakers here on the panel. Feel free to jump in at any time or throw up that Twitter space raise hand emoji. I just want to try to make sure we're not overcutting each other too much, but I do want to have a free and open discussion here today as usual. And again, once I'm running through these introductions for each speaker, please feel free to plug anything you want, any articles you have coming out, anything that has come out, feel free. We can pin that up at the top here in the nest of the space as well. Because it is the new year, maybe we could start out with what each of you is working on in 2023 what you've got planned. We do have a ton of questions for the panel, so let's get started. Just run through some introductions. First up, a friend of our Twitter spaces, FedGuy12, Joseph Wang. Welcome you back here in 2023, man. Joseph headed the trading Fed's open desk as an incredible book called Central Banking 101, is the CIO at Monetary Macro and broke 100,000 followers on Twitter. Congratulations, Joseph. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, it's a pleasure to be with all these awesome people on the panel as well. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks as always for coming, Joseph. Next, we've got Jem Karsan, our incumbent Jam Karsan of Twitter, the volatility expert, founder of Kai Volatility, which you should all be subscribed to. He's an incredibly passionate educator in the options ball and flow space and also broke 100,000 on Twitter. Welcome, Jem. Thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure. Uh, like, like everybody else said, uh, like Joseph said, it's uh, an incredible group. Uh, always learn as much as I, I give in here. Uh, check us out at Kai Volatility Backlash News. Thanks for coming, Jim. Up next, we've got Bob Elliott. Bob is the CIO at Unlimited Fund, former IC at Bridgewater, and an all-around macro geek. He's also a second timer on our spaces, so let's give him a warm welcome. How you doing, Bob? Hey everybody, good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, you know, 2023 is going to be a pretty exciting year in in my uh, spare time. I'm a macro geek and my, uh, my day job is running the HFND ETF. Uh, if that's something you're interested in, check it out uh, on uh, all the major platforms. Thanks for coming, Bob. Next, we've got the last bear standing, another frequent occurrence here on our spaces a good friend last bears an expert on numerous things as well and he has an incredible newsletter that details the subtleties often forgotten in macro if you're not subscribed definitely go do that welcome back last bear standing hey guys thanks for having me and uh happy new year to everybody um yeah as you mentioned i, I write on substack i put out a weekly column on macro and monetary policy and other things that that pique my interest so if you're if you like what I have to say here, 
you can uh, follow me on, on Twitter and follow me on Substack. So looking forward to the discussion. Thanks for coming, Last Bear. Our next friend of the spaces needs no introduction, but we'll give him one anyway. Pedro da Costa. He's the Federal Reserve Correspondent and Head of Policy for the Americas at MI Market News. He's a great resource on Twitter for all things macro. So if you're not following him, please do so. You're missing out on a lot of info there. Let's welcome you once again to the space. Pedro, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Happy CPI Day. Happy 2023. And uh, yeah, glad to be here. And check out my, uh, my podcast. That'll be going strong again this year. Fed speak on Spotify, Apple, and other places. Absolutely. Check that out, folks. Thanks for coming, Pedro. So I think let's jump right into this. I just want to start off with a quick summary of where we are macro-wise before we jump into our questions. FOMC saw a 50 basis point rate hike rise the 7th of 2022. There was a 7.1% CPI in November, better than expected job market, an inverted yield curve with strong GDP. So, Bob, I'd love for you to describe what the Fed is thinking right now and how it's looking at things, as well as your view here on where we are macro-wise as we start 2023. Bob? Well, I just, uh, I, I just sort of put together uh, my thoughts recently, and I think what we're sort of looking at from a macro perspective is what looks like a period of transitory Goldilocks, um, which is... Uh, we're going to have moderately okay growth for probably close to the first half of the year. Um, in particular, supported by the fact that we have a decline in inflation, uh, which means that real spending power is, is improved and households continue to have relatively good nominal incomes, which should lead to continued reasonable, reasonably healthy spending. Plus, we're actually seeing some moderation in the contraction, the pace of contraction in things like housing and, and, and other things. So you got sort of this okay, you know, moderately okay growth dynamic. And then you pair that with the fact that we're experiencing on the inflation side, um, a, you know, what, I, what looks like a disinflationary, you know, what is a disinflationary impulse from, you know, non-core goods, you know, things like oil having fallen and been been weak in gasoline prices, core goods, things like um, used autos and, you know, stuff like that, that has compressed a fair amount and reversed a bit of the, the, the earlier, earlier inflation. Um, and so you sort of get this combination of things that kind of looks like, okay, growth, disinflation, and you know, on the surface looks, everything looks good, but I think the thing that the Fed is really focused on and, 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 and I think appropriately so, Jay Powell has talked about it at, at length, is that when you look at sort of the structural inflation in the economy, what you see is you see, you know, let's say PCE services, which has a little less goofy than CPI services, you, know, you see a situation where you haven't had a lot of moderation you haven't basically had any change uh, or any slowing of inflation. It's still running about 5%. You see wages running at 5 or 6 or 7%, depending on exactly how you want to calculate it and which source you're looking at. And the combination of those two things means that uh, 
that structurally, while we, we might have this period of a bit weaker inflation that the markets and everyone will rejoice uh, to seeing, we're probably going to face something a little more challenging in the second half of the year where the, those disinflationary pressures moderate, leading to pressure on the Fed to continue to tighten. Because in order to break the back of that services inflation and that wage income, the labor market has to deteriorate. And so far, you know, the tight, the, 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 the economy has proved relatively resilient. Um, and so, you know, six months of transitory Goldilocks and then uh, and then we have a circumstance probably in the second half of the year where the Fed might have to do more and uh, and conditions might deteriorate. Thank you, Bob. So Bob just mentioned moderate housing growth as well in there. Joseph, to that end of the average person, there have been discussions on how inflation has affected individuals and banks. So Joseph, you recently said, quote, a tremendous credit boom took place in 2022, and it may not even be ending. You also wrote about that credit boom, suggesting it's due to the strong financial positions of banks and households, and notes that it will be very supportive of demand in the coming year. Many have argued that the credit boom means inflation can be sustained longer at higher prices given current money velocity. Could you explain for us, Joseph, what's going on and what credit has meant to the markets in 2022 and now going forward into 23? Great. And that was a great summary by Bob. Uh, by the way, he has a lot of good threads explaining his outlook on the economy that are very persuasive. So I'll actually add to that, and that's how the credit angle comes in. Uh, as Bob mentioned, it's likely that we're going to have, I think, I think, a lot of supportive um, factors for demand. And one of them, from my angle, is the tremendous credit growth that we see. So when you go and you borrow money from a bank, that money is created out of thin air. And that's, that's basically demand. Um, when I think of what could keep inflation higher, I think about where do people get money to continue to afford these higher prices? Uh, one way is from wages, which continue to be strong. One way is from asset prices, uh, which continue to rise. And another way that's very common is you borrow it. And so looking at credit growth is really important to, uh, to me in understanding whether or not uh, inflation can be sustained. And there really is a tremendous credit boom happening right now. So just for some context, over the past few years, usually the bank sector creates about $400 billion worth of uh, loans a year. Last year, they created $1.2 trillion, so three times higher than they usually create. So there's there's been a, a lot of money created, a lot of demand uh, created through that. And I think that's happening even though rates are increasing because it's not just about interest rates. It's also about the willingness and capability of borrowers to borrow and lenders to lend. And what I'm seeing right now is that banks are in a very healthy position. So Post-GFC, they were almost bankrupt. So even though um, even though rates were low and many people wanted to borrow at those low rates, they weren't really willing to lend. And today, households have net worth that are around as high as they've ever been. They have wages that continue to increase. So they have a capacity to take on more debt. Um, that combination has led to a strong, uh, I guess, supply and demand for credit, even though interest rates have risen. So when you look at the weekly data, so this is a high frequency data set, you see credit growth moderate just a little bit, but still it remains at rates that are uh, meaningfully higher than pre-pandemic. 
and that tells me that you know the Fed is probably going to have to keep, um, let's say, rates restrictive or continue to hike a little bit more uh, to be able to get credit growth down to to a level that's consistent with their two percent inflation mandate. And I think Pedro has had a lot of very smart and very uh, senior people from the Fed come on their podcast, and they they echo. Um, basically what the Fed is saying as well. Uh, the Fed is going to have to go higher than what the market is currently expecting. The market expects that the Fed is going to have to cut rates later in the year and rapidly next year. And that's that's very different from, from what the Fed themselves are forecasting and from, and from what many people familiar with the space, familiar with the Fed's thinking are forecasting. Thank you, Joseph. And Pedro, I'm going to come to you next as well here. So December CPI is expected to show annual inflation at 6.5% given median consensus. If this is the case, how do you think the Fed will position its February rate hike? So for context right now, the Fed watch has a 75% chance for 450 to 475 target rate, but the markets seem to not really care or believe the Fed. How do you, Pedro, see 2023 panning out based on what Bob and Joseph have said, especially Joseph's rates, or excuse me, especially Joseph's comments on rates? Absolutely. Thanks for the question. So I think there's a bunch of disconnects to Bob's earlier point that need to be resolved before the end of the year, a disconnect between what the Fed says and what the data shows, <clears throat> a disconnect between what Fed speakers want to convey in terms of their messaging and market pricing. But as far as the, the immediate future and the February hike that you asked about, I think it's basically a very high bar for the Fed not to slow the pace of hikes down to 25 basis points. Uh, they, they shifted fairly quickly from kind of almost wanting to overshoot on rates because they were they felt they were so behind and, and needed to front load to, to getting a little bit uh, reticent about the potential for going too far. And, and I think the biggest indication this week that they're likely to go 25 is that the market is pricing that in and, and Chair Powell uh, basically didn't uh, didn't give us any guidance to the contrary, if you will. And so he had an opportunity. He was speaking publicly. He could have clearly come out a little bit more hawkish and left the market more kind of split, and he didn't. And that followed on the heels of a major dovish shift on his part in November, where he went from being unequivocally hawkish back in Jackson Hole to delivering a much more nuanced take on inflation that became almost more forecast-based than it had been before. Before it was just, let's get inflation down and until we see it all, all the way down, we're not gonna be able to stop. And in November, when he broke down inflation into three parts, basically goods inflation, uh, housing inflation, and then core services, ex-housing, he was giving a much more nuanced and forecasty kind of take on things and basically indicating that the Fed is expecting housing inflation to go from being an upward push to basically a drag at some point. And so there's basically, you know, it, it would take a very strong CPI today to even reinsert doubt about the 25 bips. Thank you, Pedro. Does anybody have any comments on what's been said so far? I would just echo Pedro's point. 
Um, so the Fed really tries to communicate clear with the market. And Chair Powell had a speech and a very and a helpful PowerPoint deck showing that what they really care about right now is services ex housing. So that's what we should focus on uh, from from the inflation numbers to have a better gouge as to what the path of policy would be. And services ex inflation is largely labor costs, as as Bob mentioned as well. So that's why everyone is focused on wage gains and services ex housing. All right, so I'm going to move on to the next question here, kind of in a similar vein to what was just being discussed. Last, Bear, you've constantly pounded on structural cycle of inflation and how any one value is less important than the gestalt of reasons causing it. For many consumers, this continues to feel to be the case. The Wall Street Journal has reported that two-thirds of individuals polled from a sample of 4,000 stated they believe both inflation and the economic conditions are going to worsen this year. Based on what Pedro is saying and how the Fed pivoted a bit more dovish and forecast based, how does the Fed navigate these pessimistic waters and what are you seeing for 2023? You mentioned the Fed is not broke in a great post in December. So would love to hear your thoughts, Les Bear. Yeah, so I think I, I agree with what the other speakers have, have mentioned in terms of the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, which I think is the way that I think about it is that inflation overall is clearly decelerating both you know across goods and services um, for the reasons that, that folks mentioned and likely will continue uh, in that direction at least for the immediate future um, at the same time we have economic current economic conditions which seem generally positive growth is strong um, consumer continues to be um, strong and yet we see leading indicators that are starting to point negative which um, sort of gives whoever, you know, depending on your view, um, some material to work with. If you're looking very forward and thinking that, you know, PMIs and things that are maybe more leading are showing a recession in the coming year, um, you have some ammunition. Um, but at the same time, inflation is still above target and current conditions are sort of, I would say, a Goldilocks type, type uh, you know, description. So, um, it's, it's going to be a challenging thing for the Fed to sort of navigate across um, thinking sort of forward looking versus backwards looking um, and, you know, getting to the point where they uh, start to view the risks associated with tightening um, being more prescient than, uh, you know, than the risks of, uh, of not doing enough. Um, but I do think that just given the, the experience over the past year um, or two years that the um, they will lean on over tightening rather than under tightening um, for the reasons that folks have mentioned here earlier with respect to loan growth and, um, you know, just, just frankly being concerned about uh, the fact that their credibility was in some, some ways called into question over the past year or two. And so their um, preference will be to see inflation really sort of definitively um, come down and, and stay down before I think, they start to be concerned with over-tightening, particularly given that I think that they feel that in that situation, they have the tools necessary um, to sort of reignite the economy um, to the extent that that was necessary. Thank you, Last Bear. So Powell recently said he's committed to the mission of getting that inflation down despite any possible political blowback. Jim, we've spoken 
about the independence of the Fed and the way often this perception has faltered and communication has sometimes gone awry. First, comments on what anything speakers have said, Jim, and do you think Powell was so committed to this type of independence in his first comments in the new year? Yeah, my my view is <clears throat> is that everybody's looking at this whole equation as if it's linear and in two dimensions. Uh, this is a there's there's two major effects here to monetary policy. One is the the well known cyclical effects. You put money in, you stimulate, and you take money out, and that's a cyclical effect. That's what how everybody looks at it. But the real the reality is there's a there's a second probably more meaningful effect. Um, that complicates things, which are the, the structural secular effects of monetary policy. Monetary policy, as I mentioned on here and other, other places, is supply-side economics. And the more the Fed uh, increases rates here, the more they're taking money away from supply, the more they're creating, uh, reversing globalization, reducing technological innovation, yada, yada, yada. Those Suck the you know, structural secular effects um, are what led to the massive structural deflation of the last 40 years. And we are now creating uh, the opposite of that, which is structural inflation. Uh, the more the Fed raises rates here, um, that piece uh, paired with the kind of the pendulum swinging back of, of populism and, and all the things that are driving the structural inflationary forces we are seeing here underneath the surface are they're attempting to control with a a cyclical effect. And, and yes, they are going to cause a recession. Um, yes, it's probably going to be uh, more mild at first, unless they, they keep, you know, at some point, if they, if they keep raising the rates high enough, uh, they will create a deeper recession. But the point here is that they're using the wrong tool and they're creating a, a cyclical effect to, to reduce CPI. And we're all celebrating, oh, inflation has been vanquished. But the reality is underneath the surface, they're actually, you know, uh, fomenting even more structural inflation and battling something that is uh, ultimately, um, you know, longer term uh, outside uh, of their control, unless they are, uh, you know, willing to keep inequality where it is um, and deal with some of these things. So, so I think that's an important point to realize, uh, you know, there, we didn't have this turn of events uh until more recently, because uh, inequality didn't get to a point and, 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 the, and the voting and populist dynamics, we didn't hit that tipping point um, to force force these matters. Now that we have uh, trying to vanquish it with kind of the you know higher interest rates and cyclically depress demand um, is, is a, a short term solution to a much bigger structural problem. So I'll start there. There's a lot more uh, things to dive into. But but, uh, you know, what that likely means is. Uh, in the short term, uh, yes, they're going to at some time, some point, pause and pivot. Uh, you know, fairly predictable. You can, you know, look at what happens once the once the CPI comes down enough. They're going to celebrate, and we're going to we're going to go into this this period where, uh, and, and markets are front running that. Right? Uh, there's lots of, uh, you know, that that's why we're, we broadly had a, a bullish outlook the last uh, several months, and and we're likely to have a strong month here along with some other factors. Um, but the reality is these things are, uh, you know, they're not ultimately addressing the main issue. And as soon as the Fed pauses and pivots, uh, the structural underlying inflation will come back. 
Thank you, Jim. Before I move on to the next question, I want to open this to the panel. Does anyone want to comment on anything anyone else has said so far, especially Jim's comments there on short-term versus long-term Fed outlook and pivot? I, I think that was really, really very well said. And I think one of the important things to consider as market participants is um, the Fed only has the levers that it has. It does not have the ability to deal with some of these structural supply side issues. If you were the Fed, you you know it would be great if we could solve this problem structurally with in, you know the inflation issue with structurally increased supply, both production supply as well as labor supply. They can't really do that, and they can't. And anything they do wouldn't be over any any um, any any short period of time or short enough period of time. And so they pull the lever that they have, which is the ability to cyclically control, uh, cyclically control the demand side, imperfectly cyclically control the demand side. That's the lever that they have. And so, you know, as market participants, you have to follow that lever. You have to recognize that's the lever that they have, even if it's a inefficient or poor way of doing it relative to the ideal. Um, and I think this idea that what we're going to do is actually create tight money, which will reduce the incentive to supply, to create supply over time is actually a pretty interesting question. Like, are we, are we inadvertently creating, uh, it's the Fed inadvertently creating a more structural inflationary environment because they keep money tight for a long time, which, you know, depresses demand kind of like in the same way, I don't know if you, you know, windfall taxes on energy disincentivize, you know, uh, disincentivize further investment, which just increases the problem of high prices. And so I think it's really a, a very thoughtful uh, framework to think about the, the, the next, you know, three months as well as the next three years. Thank you, Bob. Any other comments there? I would also add that I think that's a really important way to look at it, but I would also add that there's uncertainty within the Fed as to how to tackle inflation that's primarily structural. And I think that their inclination deep down is to actually, in that case, if, if it does prove more persistent and structural, is to actually overdo it despite the imperfection of their own lever uh, and therefore potentially exacerbate the problem that you've described. So we'll have to wait and see how, how benign the trend, the inflation trend remains. Thank you. Thank you. So on the next question here, I'm going to spin to you again, Bob. So recently, Bob, you said wage growth has likely slowed somewhere between a tad and moderately from the very high rate growth in late 2021 and early 22. And low income earners with more propensity to spend are probably getting better growth than higher income earners still. How does inflation affect the wage cycle and employment for the listeners who are unfamiliar with this? Many claim that the Fed is trying to drive them into a recession and mass unemployment. Are they doing this, Bob? Well, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent question. Um, when you think about what we're experiencing a cycle that's a bit different than previous cycles because it's, it's um, uh, credit is a, is a critical component, but incomes are, uh, are, are income growth and, and spending down incomes spending from income is uh, is carrying a shouldering a bigger burden 
than in the past. And so you want to really understand, you got to understand what's going on with wage growth and income growth and the labor markets to, to think about how durable uh, the expansion will be or whether we're seeing a meaningful turning point. When, um, when, when you have, you know, what we've had over the course of the last two years is an inflationary impulse, um, both from supply shocks, supply constraints, and then from a war, which created commodity uh, price increases. And typically when you see, when that happens in an environment where there's significant labor slack, the reality is not much happens to wages. Um, and, you know, we saw that a little bit in the early stages of the European environment uh, in, in response to the, some of the energy price increases, although that's starting to change now. The issue is when you see those sorts of uh, inflationary impulses uh, that in, in an environment where you have a relatively tight labor market, often that will lead to labor taking advantage of their, uh, uh, of their power um, with this incentive or, or frankly the need to get higher wages in order to maintain their real spending. And so you often get an increase in wages uh, that happens in response to that when you have a tight labor market. And the big picture here is you can look at it a lot of different ways. The U.S. labor market is very tight. Um, and, and you know, maybe a, there's some small corners that is that are not as scorching as they were back uh, in 2021 and early 2022, but it's very tight. Unemployment's at secular lows, you know, continuing claims is low, initial claims is low. I, all the basic stuff that you look at, that's what you see. And so what that means is labor continues to have a reasonable amount of bargaining power to continue to look to increase wages. I think the real question is, now that we're, we're seeing those sort of inflationary impulses recede, the real question is, where does that where does that growth, that wage growth settle? Does it settle at six to seven? Does it settle at five to six? Or does it settle at two to three? And you know, maybe a touch higher than it was pre-COVID. And where it settles is a critical determinant of nominal spending, and that, and that determinant of nominal spending will determine the structural inflationary pressures that we see. And so I'd say the jury is out about where exactly that will settle. Squinting at all the wage data is critical in this moment. I think the Fed doesn't know where that will settle. I think they're concerned about it. I think that the, the point that was made um, the, that was made about the fact that the Fed is inclined to overdo it rather than underdo it is because they're inclined to think that wage growth will be more persistent at elevated levels, undesirable elevated levels than than. And so therefore, they're better off. The Fed is better off over tightening rather than under tightening. And so, but that's the big, the jury is out on that. And so if we think about the scope of uncertainties, what, what are the big uncertainties in this market? The big uncertainty in this market is where does wage growth settle? Because that will determine a lot of what really the back half of 23 is going to look like. I think the, the, you know, thinking about that as if it's a coin flip is, uh, is not fair. I think the reality is, uh, you know, Biden's approval rating is is now higher than it's been since before he started. Um, populism is popular. You know, uh, we are rebalancing from a Gini coefficient 
that went from 0.37 all the way up to 0.47 here in the U.S. in the last 40 years. Um, and you're dealing with a, a generation and millennials on down, which is at 40% of the wealth uh, creation, 40% of the household formation of the baby boomers at this point in their lives. And uh, every year that goes by, they are at a point of increasing political dominance. So this is not a, uh, you know, will wages go up, will they not? Um, you know, the government is playing a hand on it. And it's not, it's not just uh, on the left, it's on the right. Um, you know, populism is what brought Donald Trump into office. Um, and it's what brought the right left. Um, it is going nowhere. If anything, it is continue, continuing to build. And, and the great irony is that populism is, drives inflation. And inflation, which is a flat tax on the poor, drives more populism. So if you think wage growth is going to all of a sudden about face and turn around, um, I think we're, you know, we're, we're asking that yeah, you're right, 100% you're right, that, that that's what matters. But uh, I think there's pretty clear indications of where that's going. I, I totally agree with Jim's point that populism is inflationary. And I'll just add a little bit more to the structural talk about higher wage inflation, since that's actually been in the minds of senior Fed officials as well. I think Vice Chair Lil Brainerd had a speech discussing some points and a couple of points I think that to keep in mind when you're thinking about why the Fed might be more cautious is that two big structural reasons why wages could stay higher. One is deglobalization, as Jim mentioned. You can think of it as basically if wages got too high in the US, you could have sourced labor from abroad by moving production abroad. But if there's less globalization, that's less likely. And the other, and this is, I think, one of the big stories of our generation is that our working age population is shrinking. So in the 80s, people had smaller families. And so that's finally becoming more apparent now. Um, our workforce is not growing the same way that it used to grow. And that means there's going to be structurally a shortage of labor and that pushes wages higher um, in the coming years. Uh I couldn't agree. Actually, one more thing I wanted to add here is, you know, people look at the 60s and 70s, and if you read articles online, for the most part, the overwhelming consensus is that we don't really know why inflation happened in the, in the 60s and 70s. We know there are several factors. We know there was the Great Society program and the fiscal spending. We know there was the Vietnam War. Um, and, and we know that, uh, you know, there was, there was a OPEC, an OPEC crisis and commodity squeezes. But very uh, nowhere do you read about the connection between all these things. These these are created, treated as separate events, and you know we talk about the war in Russia, Ukraine as also a separate event. But the reality is, during periods of inflation, uh, during periods of populism that drive that inflation, we are much more nationalistic. We are much more protectionist. And when I say we, uh, the world is. You go from a period of of cooperation when, when monetary policy is flowing, corporations are international. They span continents. They search for globalization. They create, te create uh, technological innovation. When we go to a time of populism, it is local. It, is, it belongs to the countries themselves and we become much more competitive. We, there's resource scarcity that leads to things like the OPEC crisis. It leads to more conflict as well globally. These things are all related and it's not a coincidence that we're seeing the similar things that we saw from the 60s and 70s in that regard as well. So Pedro, do you have any comments on what the panel is saying regarding populism, structural inflation, and uh, employment in the second half of the year? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the Fed is is seriously concerned about the labor market and wages, and, and for the reasons that were just described, that there might be, you know, 
there's a big debate about whether we've entered a new regime, basically of permanently higher underlying inflation. And the Fed isn't sure whether, whether you know, we're going back to the, the pre-COVID days or whether we're in this new world. And so that's kind of part of the reason underpinning its desire to slow the pace of hikes now is to wait and see how the data turn out in the next few months. Uh, but there's, there's still, uh, there's an inconsistency in the fact that they appear to be wanting to pause, but at the same time, that pause requires the labor market to cool substantially in their own, in their own words, and that doesn't really seem to be happening. They also claim that they want to see tighter financial conditions, yet financial conditions have actually been easing. Uh, and Chair Powell has been was unusually specific in his um, in his Brookings remarks about how wage growth at, at current levels is inconsistent with price stability, and and just by how, he was exact about how much he needs to see that go down. And so I think one of the disconnects that I wanted to point to is that the Fed seems very you know seems to have a very strong desire to pause. At least I think there's a split in the committee, but at least the core of the committee led by Chair Powell wants to wants to basically peak out at, at 5%. And yet, at the, in the same breath, officials often say that they need to get real rates into positive territory in order to be truly restrictive. And even with a, with a decent CPI today, we're not, we're not there yet. And so that, that's one of the disconnects that for me is going to have to be resolved and I like Bob's idea of a of a, of a sort of transitory Goldilocks, uh, because I think that is where we are. And I think that these these gaps between what the Fed is saying and what we're seeing in the numbers are going to have to be resolved one way or the other toward the second half. So it looks like we've got some numbers in looking at 6.5. I know everyone likes to take a few moments to kind of digest what has come out. We're looking at 6.5 for CPI. Any initial comments, anyone at all on the panel? So it looks like month over month, uh, everything including energy is down 0.1%. Core is up 0.3%, which I think is in line, but on the higher end of the, the core range, which was estimated 02 to 03 and then it is a little bit higher than it was in November on, on the core side, which is 0.2. So obviously headline down in line with expectations, core maybe a little bit hot, um, but that's obviously just, just reading the, the initial take. Looks pretty boring, you know, kind of what we all expected. Um, I mean, we'll roll up our sleeves and get into the, the, the bowels of it, but yeah, maybe, maybe a touch maybe a touch higher on core, but this is kind of what people are expecting. And it's one of these, this has the vibe of a report that um, the bulls and the bears can all squint at and find something that they, that they love. You know, the bulls are going to love the continue, you know, the continued or the actual uh, disinflation, um, you know, take it or leave it as being, as whether you think it matters uh, and the bears are going to, you know, squint under the hood and find things that show a little more momentum than would be desirable for the Fed here. But, you know, let's get into the, the dock and start looking. <laughs> One of those things I think would be shelter, which seems to have picked up steam again after after dipping a bit in November. So, Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm seeing that as well, like. 
yeah, rent of primary residence picking up that is going to be a surprise to those who suggested that this an owner's equivalent rent picking up. There's going to be some folks who who called the end of the uh, of the housing the house price inflation or the the housing CPI inflation. They're going to be pretty uh, unhappy with that situation. Yeah, that's one of the major sticking points for the Fed is how soon does that housing contribution start to become essentially a drag? And some people think as early as as the middle of the year because because of rental contracts that have shown kind of have been turning you know, turning lower. So if everyone is okay with it, while we kind of digest, I want to spin here to my next set of questions here. So one thing that we get a lot of questions about, but never really get to speak about is housing, specifically U.S. housing. Before we dive a little deeper into the conversation about a recession, it might be worthwhile to explore the idea of housing bubbles a bit, housing crashes, or just how resilient housing is given refinancing and locking in rates. <clears throat> Last bear, I would love your thoughts here as we segue into the ideas of recessions and pivots in 2023. Yeah, so on, on housing, I've written a little bit about it last year. I haven't looked at all the most recent data on it, but obviously probably the most rate sensitive sector out there um, is a big driver of economic activity when you consider new building um, activity in addition to um, sort of the wealth effect that you get from uh, existing home price sales increasing or, or decreasing. Um, it seems that sort of there's a, there's a big standstill in the market just given the, the way that rates have moved over the past year. Um, and I don't see that, uh, even though we've, I would say that the sort of broad market conditions, as I think Pedro mentioned, actually haven't really tightened, if anything, have, have loosened maybe a touch um, over the past six months, let's say. Um, I don't think that you're going to see mortgage rates really come down to a level um, where they'd be comparable to, to what we're seeing, um, you know, over the past several years. And so that's just going to be a massive um, bid ask discrepancy between where people are, you know, associating their property prices with versus, you know, what's what's feasible based on um, what people can afford at, at given mortgage rates. Um, and obviously, given mortgage rates are long term debt, it sort of has the most substantial um, changes based on on the prevailing interest rates. So, I don't think I don't think anyone's expecting a, a pivot in the near term such that would see mortgage rates sort of decline to a level that they were recently. And so it'd be logical to assume that, you know, this, this impasse in the housing market will continue. And obviously then the, the sales that get done are people who are likely motivated to sell um, or need to sell. And so I'd expect to see continued declines in, in that market. Um, but it's, it remains to be seen, I guess, whether, whether that turns into something that's, um, you know, akin to a mid 2000s type housing debacle or, or something that's more reasonable um, than that. So it's, uh, it's definitely one of the most rate sensitive sectors in the economy and, and something to watch um, when we're considering recession and economic growth. Thank you, Last Bear. Does anyone else have anything to add in regards to housing before we talk a bit more about possible pivots and recessions and the U.S. Treasury liquidity? I'd add one small thing. You know, I think um, 
I think it's important when you're talking about real estate to differentiate between housing and, and commercial real estate. I think, um, as I mentioned, household formation for millennials on down is, is about, you know, 40% of where it was uh, for baby boomers. Their uh, government is likely to continue to, to feed that uh, population who will be, you know, voting in elections. Um, I, I would expect uh, sometime in the next couple of years to expect you know, something in the lines of first-time homebuyer tax credit or something along those lines if, if, if housing inflation doesn't come down. Um, I think support of that market, given the need and, and the, the structural demand that exists there, will underpin that market, yeah, even with yields going higher, the mortgage rates going higher. That said, I think uh, you know, commercial real estate uh, you know, has, a, has a world of, of hurt still. There's still a big overhang there. And so it's important to know what you're buying when you say real estate. I agree with Las Baron that this is the most interest rate sensitive sector. But when I was looking through the data, I was actually very surprised by what I found. As we've all heard, uh, so let's say mortgage rates have gone higher. A lot of people, a lot of builders having trouble selling their homes. Certainly my Zillow estimate for my house has gone down a lot. But when I look at the actual credit data, looking at, let's say, bank commercial and residential real estate loans, you really can't see a slowdown. Um, now, on the residential side, I'll caveat that by most mortgages are, are not given by banks anymore, but uh, you know, around half still are. And if you look at the uh, residential real estate lending by commercial banks, it, it continues to steadily increase. You really can't see the higher mortgage rates um, having an impact. Um, another thing to keep in mind is that I think there's a, also a boom in multifamily. And I think depending on how many units there are that falls under commercial real estate. So um, even if the residential side might be slowing, we have a lot of multifamily housing coming up that has already started construction, needs financing and, can, and continues to be built. I, I, uh, I appreciate uh, the, the, the connection to the credit because you can, you can get a really great timely understanding of whether this is falling off a cliff. By looking at the credit, I think the other thing that's interesting is I think a lot of people are sitting here saying housing will be uh, a disaster, and probably housing will be you know will experience peak to trough a pretty significant decline in both activity and in prices. But that doesn't mean that tomorrow that's what's happening. And if anything, actually, what we see. In the, in the data, both I think the credit data is good to highlight, as well as the actual construction activity data, is that instead of just a total collapse in what's going on in housing, what we've seen is kind of a, in the middle of last year, as rates started to rise, the, the sort of frothiest stuff came down. And we've actually seen a slowing in the contraction of residential construction, which is important to keep in mind, because that is taking what was a pretty big negative in a negative impulse on GDP and the economy and making it less negative, which is supportive to the aggregate economic conditions. Big picture is housing cycles move super, super slowly. Everyone is rushing to say housing is going down, the economy is going down, we're in a recession, there you go. But housing cycles typically take three or four years, even relatively acute housing cycles, to go from peak to trough. And we're like six months into that. And so um, 
it's it's a great example of one of those things where you're gonna it's all gonna move slower than what people you know people who are writing clickbait tweets on Twitter would like you to believe. Yeah, and I would add maybe as a as a general point, I think that you had to recognize where that the consumer delevered substantially over the pandemic. So it's not like people are at the you know their wits end when it comes to um, the level of credit that they can take on and their earnings. And a lot of people have savings and have seen asset prices go up a whole lot, even if they come down more recently. So. The condition, I, I think that's why, uh, you know, a lot of the predictions for sort of these crashes or, or sort of, you know, some, something along those lines haven't really borne out part of that, I think, across the board, both respect to things like housing, but also consumer spending and um, and sort of general economic growth have to be looked at in the lens of a delevered consumer that, you know, came into this rate hiking cycle really, you know, really flush, and that's going to make it um, I guess more challenging if you're thinking from the Fed's perspective um, to sort of subdue demand. But on the positive side, that means that a lot of these markets may turn out to be much more resilient than than people expect. Or um, to the point that I think Bob just made, um, you know, that housing particularly is a, a cycle that that doesn't happen overnight. Um, you can't really have a 10% crash in in housing in a day like you could in the S&P 500, hypothetically. Um, and so it, it just takes longer because those transactions take longer to play out and there's not as sort of liquid and clear markets um, in, in those sort of assets. So um, I think it's that's one area that, that everyone should continue to keep in mind is that people are, you know, people delevered a ton and people's balance sheets still at this point are good, even if they're maybe deteriorating to an extent. Pedro, do you have any comments here on credit and housing as well? And how are you feeling about the, as Bob put it, boring CPI report? I think, well, I think it's it's boring, but it 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 just corroborates that it, I think it's weak enough. There are certain pockets of, of strength that I think will worry some Fed officials, but I think it's it's sufficiently in line to to kind of rubber stamp the 25 and allow the Fed to keep going there. Um, I honestly see housing as a greater risk than, than maybe some of the other panelists. Uh, just because the magnitude of and, and speed of the bubble was so large that I think that, you know, a potential house price crash is is not being fully factored into both the, the implications it would have for for the economy and for households. And for employment, really, but also for for the for a financial system that's already going to come under deep pressure this year, from you know just the lagged effect of higher interest rates and the potential for financial inst instability there, and so I think that a larger than expected uh, crash in in home prices could have greater reverberations. I'm also hearing a lot of stories about when you hear a lot of kind of official voices talk about how different it is this time and how how the, the contracts were written differently and, and you know, there are fewer uh, variable rate mortgages. I get, a little, I get a little worried with the sort of this time is different talk. So I'm, I'm watching housing closely as a potential risk for the economy this year. Um, so that would, be, that would be my general take. But, but on the CPI, I think it's important to keep in mind that the Fed is no longer united. Uh, it was very 
easy to get consensus around getting rates up when they knew they were so far behind. But now that they're closer to where they think a sufficiently restrictive is, you've started to see a significant breakage between folks like Neil Kashkari and Raphael Bostic, who are talking about going well over five and and not really showing any signs of of uh, of giving of giving up the ghost, if you will. But but then you have speeches from folks like Lisa Cook, who focused on a really dovish breakdown of inflation in her most recent speech. Uh, even Jim Bullard, who's been a hawk before and mentioned a five to seven percent range of, of uh, kind of Taylor rule peak rates back in November, he said last week that he'd be happy with going to just the, the SEP determined level of 5.1%. So I think you're going to get increasingly mixed signals from uh, from the committee, and it's going to be important to see uh, where where Chair Powell's allegiances lie, because I think, you know, it's hard to get a read on him because he has to be the adjudicator. And so I think more, most recently he's been swayed by the Lael Brainerd argument that it was time to slow down, but uh, a continuation of, of stronger CPI data and PCE data in, in coming months could could definitely turn him around the other way. It's kind of uh, scary to me that, you know, I, don't, I, I think if there's ever an indication that the, the emperor has no clothes uh, and that the Fed really doesn't know what they're doing is that we're going to go to 5%, this nice round number, <laughs> and just sit there. Right? I, I, you know, why not four and a half or five and a half or, right? It's, it's this, uh, they're playing this cyclical game and five just sounds like a nice place to stop and take a breather and look. It, there's no real, uh, you know, the science behind this is, is questionable at, at best. Um, one, one last thing I'll say is, uh, you know, the 10 year yield was up, the dollar was strong, you know, uh, oil, um, you know, uh, had come off quite a bit off its highs and was hanging out, you know, around here for now quite some time. And CPI got softer. Um, and since then, we've seen the dollar really come down dramatic, you know, quite dramatically. Uh, Ten-year yield uh, has has uh, come down significantly. China's been closed uh, throughout this recent period, right? Uh, hasn't been reopening. Now all of a sudden you're seeing stimulation coming there. There's a lot of things that are all of a sudden nobody's really talking about, but really have gone the other way in the last several months. Um, that really uh, could lead to a increasingly hotter CPI in the months to come. Um, I think uh, seeing a kind of quote unquote boring CPI here is uh, is actually interesting in the context of, uh, of, of how soft it was a couple uh, months before and uh, I think it'd be interesting. I think everybody's calling for a, a ho hum. Inflation continues to to come down quicker than expected. I, I think we're, I would expect that if not next month, the month afterwards, we start to see a, a firming in that number, and and that's really kind of the sign um, of of a potential uh, second leg down and, and uh, Fed having to reconsider what it's. So, does anyone have any other comments or cross comments on this point here? I would just follow up once again. I don't want to take over, but uh, just to follow up to say that I think there's a there are a lot of very prominent former officials and staffers that I talk to who think there is a big risk that the Fed will have to pause at this sort of at this nice round number and but then revisit hikes later in the year as inflation proves stickier than they expected, and that could be a big issue for for credibility.
All right, so I'll move to the next question here, and this one is for you, Bob. Bob, back in November, you had said that the U.S. economy is still quite a ways from recession. Looking at the labor market, we should expect recession to begin when claims are around 418,000, given the past couple cycles and today's working age population size. Even a relatively fast deterioration would take nearly a year to get there. Do you still hold this belief, Bob, a few months later with you know, the information we've got now? Yes, <laughs> that's the short answer. No, I think, I think the, um, uh, in, in the spirit of a relatively slow moving shift, downshift in growth, you know, if anything, if we look at where we are today relative to where we were, you know, three months ago, the big picture is that, uh, inflation's a little lower, supporting real demand. You've got uh, you've got uh, financial conditions which have you know are have improved a bit um, from where we were, and so all of these things. You know, this this is this is this is looking at the wiggles, but like on a wiggle basis between you know where we were three months ago versus where we are today, things are looking a little better, and so in order you know. So back then it looked like we were, you know, the fastest we were going to get to a labor market recession. Um, to be clear, other sectors might move earlier or will, would almost certainly move earlier than that. But it looked like the fastest we were going to get is a year out. And then since then, claims have actually, initial claims have come down, continuing claims have stabilized. Um, unemployment rate, the unemployment rate, which is a little choppy and I wouldn't read too much into it, but, you know, it's fallen. Today we get another. What do we got here? 205 in initial claims. Um, we've got continue, continuing claims at 163.34. Like that is that is not anywhere close to recession in terms of where we are with the labor market. And I think it's really important to recognize. Typically in cycles, the labor market is the last thing to move, and that's because the credit cycle is the most important driver here. But in an income-driven cycle, uh, or, or where incomes are meaningfully contributing to the overall demand, what happens with the labor market is much closer to coincident than it is to meaningfully lagging. And so that's why, you know, that's why I stare at this every week. Those of you who follow me know that every week I put something out around the initial claims that says, you know, the U.S. labor market remains at sec is remains secularly tight, and there is no indication that that's shifting here. And so if anything, you know, I would basically say, take what we said in, you know, it's what I said in November, not only have we hit pause and kept where we were since then over the course of the last eight weeks, but if anything, we've gotten a little bit better. Any other thoughts from the panel on recession here? All right. So I'll move over here to you, Joseph. Next, we spoke about QT a lot in these spaces, as well as Fed liquidity. You noted recently of the Fed's QT dilemma saying, one, the Fed wants to aggressively shrink the balance sheet, while two, keeping the banking sector reserves above a minimum level. That requires QT to drain the RRP, but it's just not happening and likely won't given this threshold. Joseph, care to explain, kind of elaborate a bit, given households being the last marginal buyer, as you eloquently have put it in your penultimate post? 
Yeah, so the Fed is doing QT, as we all know. And what the QT does is that it gradually drains liquidity out of the financial system. Now, that's what the Fed is trying to do, but it also doesn't want to drain too much. And its criteria for draining too much or not is making sure that the banking system has enough liquidity to function. Uh, it's not easy to know how much liquidity the banking system needs. So liquidity from the banking system are, are called reserves. They're basically cash balances on deposit at the Fed. Now, the Fed perceives that the last time they did QT, they overdid it a little bit. And that's why they think that repo rates spiked in 2019, which forced them to do a 180 and began to buy treasury bills and add liquidity back into the financial system. Now, so they don't want that to happen again. So from their, from their perspective, based on what I read in their annual reports, it, it seems like they think that the liquidity in the banking system uh, that, they, that the banking system needs is about, let's say two, two and a half trillion dollars in, in, in reserves. Uh, right now we're, we're about at 3 trillion. In the beginning of QT, the Fed was saying, but the Fed was looking into the financial system and thinking that, you know, we have a whole bunch of liquidity pointing to the reverse repo facility, which had about $2 trillion at that time. And they seemed to think that because there was $2 trillion in the reverse repo facility, they could do a very aggressive QT, draining a maximum $100 billion a month. In contrast, the first time they did QT, they were draining $50 billion a month. So a rate that's twice as fast as, as, as they did before. They thought they could do this because there's a lot of excess liquidity in the reverse repo facility. But that's not actually how the financial system works. There's all these different pipe, pipes and you, you have to drain liquidity in, in a certain way. And the way that they're doing right now, the way that that's happening is that their aggressive QT isn't really draining money from the reverse repo facility. As you noted, Nicholas, it's just draining it from the banking sector. And so you see the liquidity in the banking sector fall pretty rapidly the past few past year um, without the RRP changing. And that's a problem to the Fed because it wants to continue QT for maybe another year or two. And yet it's getting closer and closer to that minimum cash level in the, in the banking system. So that's potentially putting a constraint on how far QT could go. Um, unless things change, I mean, they, they might have to stop and let's say by the end of this year, so that that's, but you know, there's a lot of thing moving pieces to this. It's it's not super clear how exactly it will play out. I'll, I'll add also that um, earlier last year and throughout most of last year, you had tremendous liquidity problems in the treasury market, and in part that was due to QT significantly increasing the supply of treasuries that the market had to digest. The market has gotten some reprieve from that because there seems to be some market participants who perceive there to be an imminent recession. And so are piling into the treasury market and you can see the curve invert pretty dramatically. Now, if sentiment changes and let's say they, they come to the view that I think many in this, in this uh, form share that, you know, recession is not imminent, uh, maybe not even that bad, then, you know, you could see a reversal of that where people rotate out of that trade and then treasury market liquidity uh, could be, again, be aggravated by QT and you could have some volatile moves there. Thank you, Joseph. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, I, I mentioned the cyclical, I'm going to keep pounding on this, but cyclical versus secular effects. You know, if, if what I'm saying is true, um, you know, the inverted yield curve is one of the greatest opportunities 
um, out there, right? Um, you know, this idea that cyclically, you know, the Fed's going to continue to um, kind of battle a secular uh, issue. That means, you know, shorter dated, you know, recessionary fears are going to continue to, to plague the market as, as the Fed continues to battle um, the market. Um, whereas the secular side has a much higher, you know, the longer end of the curve has a, has a much higher probability of continuing to work its way higher. Um, just something to, to, to think about out there. I mean, if you look at the 60s and 70s, um, we had four recessions, you know, in 14 years, um, you know, during that period. Uh, you know, three major, sorry, three major recessions. I said four. Um, you know, that was an, that's an incredibly frequent, and they were each fairly long. Yet GDP growth, right, during that 14-year period was above trend in real terms with really hot inflation. That's counterintuitive. You know, the inflation and the demand push economy that existed at that time was, was uh, met with more recessions more cyclical downturns, yet it was still secularly very inflationary. And I think that's very counterintuitive for people and people get very confused. It's, it's critical to understand this difference between cyclical pressures and secular. I just wanted to add quickly to, to Joseph's point on, on liquidity. Um, the other dynamic I played, and I wrote about this in, in a recent post, but um, I think the the Treasury General account has also sort of gotten drawn down from about 900 billion back in May to something like 400 billion today. So that's 500 billion dollars of liquidity that had been sort of added to the market um, via the the Treasury um, over the past six months or seven months at this point, um, and that will likely continue to help sort of um, mitigate the effects of QT in the near term, given everything that's happening with the debt ceiling and the fact that that Treasury General account may continue to decline from here, um, but just something to continue to keep a, an eye out as you're thinking about bank reserves and you know, what, what's the minimum amount of reserves required in the banking sector um, that, as Joe mentioned, that there's a lot of different pipes that are sort of pulling and pushing in different ways. Um, so you have to consider all the, the different factors, including the reverse repo, which as Joe mentioned, has not, um, is, is not being drained. And there's a lot of reasons why I think you could expect that to continue going forward, um, but also understanding how the sort of the timing of um, treasury issuances, uh, federal expenditures, tax receipts, all that, all that factor in. So um, it's, it's potentially something to look at after the debt ceiling is actually lifted and the treasury goes out and sort of refills its, its coffers um, via the debt market, that that'll take bank reserves as well. And that's where I think you can see um, a lot of pressure um, on that point that Joe's raising later in this year. Celeste Bear, thanks for mentioning your post. I was just going to ask about that. Uh, you recently said that Fed losses are not a problem in a practical sense, and therefore the Fed's losses are the private sector's gains. Can you can you explain that a little bit and maybe also elaborate on your quote, is the Fed broke or rather not broke post for the audience, given Joseph's comments and what Jem's saying? Yeah, so the, the point on that, and I think we talked about this in a, in a prior space, is, was just that the, the Fed is now paying you know, something like 4% on um, 
a huge amount of bank reserves and a huge amount of money that's sitting in the reverse repo. So between those two, I think that the total number is around four to five trillion dollars um, that it's paying four percent interest on. And so from the Fed's perspective, that shows up as a loss um, in their sort of PL, which which doesn't really matter because the Fed um, does not need to make money and can create its own money. Um, but uh, that can be misconstrued as being sort of a, a negative thing because you, it sounds like a negative thing that the Fed's losing money. But really what that means is that more interest is being paid to private sector participants, both banks and money market funds and money market fund investors, um, which actually is sort of ironically stimulative. So all the, you know, the if you have money sitting in a, in a money market fund that's earning 4% now when it used to earn 0%, that's income that's that's being received by you know, the private sector and to the extent that, that um, interest rates stay where they are, that will continue going forward. So it's a little bit of a kind of a, a quirk where um, as the Fed is now paying out higher interest rates, that's actually um, in some senses benefiting the, the economy, though not at the same time. It's, it doesn't overpower QT. It's not a larger quantum than that, but it does mitigate it to an extent. I agree with that. And I'd also add one more thing and that many people have talked about the large, um, the large losses the Fed has had on their securities portfolio. So the Fed holds several trillion dollars in treasuries and agency MBS rates have gone higher. So their unrealized losses have been, you know, several hundred billion dollars. So if the Fed didn't buy those, someone in the private sector would have bought those. And so it would have been the private sector that were eating that loss. But since the Fed basically took the interest rate risk out of the market, it, it's in a sense, now that rates have gone higher, it, it's like the Fed subsidizing the, the private sector a little bit by bearing these losses, taking the loss for them. And of course, as the last fair mentioned, the Fed you know, doesn't, is not trying to make money, so they don't really care about it. So, but by taking duration risk out of the market, um, in a sense, they make their monetary policy less effective because uh, when they raise rates, it, it doesn't decrease wealth as much since a lot of the losses are, a lot of the securities are held on their balance sheet, but it, it's another subsidy in a sense to, to the private sector. Thank you both. Pedro, could you here speak about the Fed's balance sheet from your perspective and expertise, given Joseph's comments on marginal buyers, Fed liquidity, QT, and last bear's comments as well? I would love your expertise here, Pedro. Absolutely. Well, a lot of it has been learned from people like Joseph and, and other, other folks who are experts in it. Um, I mean, my take is that that's one of the the underpriced risks of this year is that we've gotten so focused on on rates that we are ignoring the tightening effect that is kind of hard to gauge from the from the tightening of the balance sheet. And so there might come a point where the Fed needs to prematurely abort QT because it finds that, you know, that there are suddenly liquidity problems potentially in the Treasury market or in other places. So I think that's it's essentially a uh, an, a risk for this year that's that's very underpriced. Anyone care to comment on Pedro's remarks there as well? Yeah, I, I think there's two different, and he mentioned both of them, but there, there's risks that we talked about earlier with respect to um, whether the banking sector has enough reserves um, and will continue to lend and make markets in the way that that they do. 
um, which is would be sort of the, the 2019 repeat risk. But then there's also sort of a, a separate question about the treasury market itself. So you could have another situation like what we saw um, with the Bank of England back in September or October, um, where uh, that where the treasury market itself causes the you know the, the central bank to step in to sort of um, um, backstop that market if it if it loses liquidity and, and things start to go haywire. So you could see both of those you know would be addressed in the same way from the Fed's perspective in terms of injecting liquidity to either put more reserves on 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 the balance sheet of banks or um, you know put basically backstop the treasury market itself and sort of open market operations. But those are both basically, um, you know, Q, I mean, the, are, are both effectively QE. So I think you'd see sort of this temporary, it wouldn't be probably called QE, but it would be sort of an intervention type, not QE, similar to what we saw in 2019, which could be response to either a situation where banks um, are at their their level of reserves that they, they need and can't lend anymore, or because um, treasury market liquidity declines to a point where there's um, not functioning in that market. And similar to the Bank of England's kind of intervention recently, right? That's, there's even a more recent example. So we could look to that where it was QE, not QE. And, and on that point, it seems like that was actually for all the sort of grief that they took for it. Understandably, it, it seems like it was pretty effective at sort of calming that market. And there hasn't really been, at least to, to my knowledge, um, you know, it, it seemed like it was pretty effective in, in doing that. So it's possible that you could have really just, you know, step in intervention um, that, that proves to be um, effective in addressing sort of short-term liquidity issues. Well said. It was surprisingly successful against all odds at the time, seemingly. So one thing we haven't really spoken about too terribly much today that I would like to touch on before we send people into market open here in about 23 minutes uh, is volatility, CPI, and inflation kind of all tied together in 2023. So, Jim, you recently said on Anthony Crudell that there's a possibility of outperformance of large cap tech given crowding and areas not as well hedged. You've also discussed a rubber band effect, Jim, with a realized volatility basis and amount of leverage given cheap options and potentially low skew. Jim, could you care to explain further a bit here and your outlook on volatility in 23? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks, thanks for highlighting that. The 2022 was marked by overhedging in the equity fall complex, equity index complex. Institutions were massively long put uh, in their portfolio. Why? Because look at how much money was made owning puts in Feb March 2020. Any short sellers of all uh, were liquidated in 2020. Nobody was ever going back there again. I've heard the story a million times. Uh, and then everybody now thinks and sees the back test and you know the value of, of, a, of a tail hedge. So everybody piled in, and uh, you know when everybody piles in, what happens reflexively? It doesn't work. Uh, on the way down, there was massive amounts of puts to be sold in the market. Vol compression into the declines. Fixed strike vol got annihilated in the equity index space. And what that reflexively did is not just pin the index into the down into the decline that we saw this year. This has led to the VIX is broken commentary, right? And, and forced skew 
in the equity vol space from the 98th, 99th percentile down to the zero percentile, which is where we are now. Um, not only did it do that, but it has other effects across the market. What it did in 2022 is it forced a massive rotation. Yes, we can talk about the macro reasons why the commodity space and uh, you know, whatnot has, has outperformed in value relative to growth and how growth has been liquidated. But the reality is it had to by arbitrage constraints that the index is going to be down 19% of the year and tech is going to be down, which was the most under head space with the highest valuations. And if that's going to be down 70%, you have to see demand to other parts of the market, just simple arbitrage. Um, you've had a lot of people hiding out in the resource space, um, uh, you know, and, and a couple of other areas, uh, which I don't need to highlight at this moment, but the point here is now that SKU is in the zero percentile and everybody has liquidated their equity index hedges and said, look, uh, you know, why would I ever be long vol? We get a decline in the market that I expected and I still lose money on my hedges. What is the point? Um, you know, that psychology now means we no longer have those hedges into the next potential decline. What does that mean for the rest of the market? Well, that means more likely that the, the areas of the market which have had a tailwind of support and arbitrage constraint demand are likely not to have it into the next decline. It also happens to be the most crowded area um, at this point. Um, so if we get a second leg down, which in my opinion will likely be much more volatile than the first leg down, this is what we historically see under these circumstances, the center of that is likely to be not where it's been in the tech, uh, broad tech and growth sector. Um, it's likely to be much more in crowded areas that have had tailwinds in, in demand like the resource sector. So more of a correlation one, uh, negative beta of, of the growth kind of area will likely underperform its beta on the downside um, or outperforms the upside into these counter trend rallies. Um, and so, you know, buyer beware, caveat emptor in those, uh, those places that seem really safe and logically an inflationary period will do well. Now that said, my secular inflationary thesis holds that that stuff will still do well in the next, um, you know, five, 10 year period. Uh, if you believe that, um, you know, after a bit of a washing out here, but I would expect some type of washout in some of those areas that are very crowded where people are hiding a much more correlation one uh, vol event when it comes in my opinion, the next six months, but maybe it's nine. Um, and, uh, you know, that will be an interesting buying opportunity in those sectors. Thank you much, Jim. So here we're about 20 minutes to market open. So I just want to get any final thoughts that any of you have. I'll go right down the line here. And again, please plug anything at all that you have coming out. We'd love to direct people toward you folks to learn more. Uh, so first, Joseph, do you have any closing comments here as well as anything to plug? Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me. And I enjoyed being on discussion. I always learn from people on this, on this forum. You know, I, I think that I share from my perception, I share the macro view of the people on this forum. And it's not actually what I see in the market right now. So so that difference, I think, as Jim suggested earlier, there's some opportunity there in, in my own view. Um, so I, I would be cautious going forward because it seems like, you know, oftentimes the market gets caught in its own narrative and it's it's not fully aware of what how the Fed is thinking or or uh, certainly that was the case first quarter of last year. So that, that's what I would leave everyone with. 
And Joseph, if you'd like here, before we continue down the line, you're more than welcome to go more into your new monetary macro if you wanted to speak on that since it's new. Uh, well, I, I can't speak too much on that, uh, but but I will say this. So uh, many of you know me through my blog, which I teach about the mechanics of the financial system in my book, Central Banking 101, where I help people understand um, how the uh, well, central banking works. So I have a new course set of courses coming out uh, in the coming weeks. It's called Markets 101, which I do the same methodology, and I try to um, help people understand markets a little bit better. So when I was on the open markets desk at the, at the Fed, we would put all our um, interns and our new recruits through basically a three-month program to teach them a little bit about how, how markets work and how to, how to interpret them. So I'm trying to bring that to a broader audience, and that will be on my website, Central Banking 101, um, in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that. Beautiful. Congratulations on that, Joseph. Can't wait to see that come out. Thank you. So last bear, any last comments here and anything to plug, please feel free. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, thanks again, obviously for having me on the panel. It's always um, great discussion. Um, I would just agree with uh, Sam's last, uh, the, you know, the last points that he was making around volatility, energy sector, and, and those dynamics. I think those were spot on um, from my perspective. It is pretty astounding to see where skew has, um, and for folks, maybe to put it into more simple terms, like thinking about tail risks and thinking about sort of the volatility of volatility, um, whether you could have a, a, you know, a vol spike, which we really haven't seen despite the bear market, um, to see where that's gone in the, in the course of the past year from being incredibly expensive to buy that sort of protection to now being arguably incredibly cheap to buy that sort of protection. Um, but also just on the, the performance of energy um, versus where commodities have actually traded over the past month or two. Um, that, that does seem to be a big discrepancy. So love those comments. Um, if you like anything that, that I've said, feel free to follow me here on Twitter and, and also follow my Substack where I post weekly about um, these sort of topics. So thanks again for having me. Thanks again for coming, Last Bear. As always, love having you here and getting your insights. Bob, any closing comments? Anything else you got coming out or on your horizon for 2023 you want to plug? Please do. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I really enjoy uh, these conversations. Uh, you know, it's great. It's just incredible, the expertise that <clears throat> is around this table. And so I, I hope we all uh, appreciate it. Um you know, I think it's it's uh, you looking across markets. It sure seems like you can't hold those bulls down. They'll take uh, <laughs> they'll take anything, um, anything for good reason to buy. We might see that fade a little bit through the rest of the day. Um, uh, in terms of me, you know, you guys, uh, for folks who are familiar with me, you can follow me on Twitter, where basically all my sort of ongoing macro thinking is uh, is displayed. And if you want to learn a little bit more about what we're doing with the HFND ETF, which um, replicates uh, the returns of the hedge fund industry in a convenient and widely accessible ETF wrapper, uh, you can check it out uh, uh, at our website, unlimitedfunds.com, um, or you know, go and, and look up whatever you want to look up on all the available on all the, the standard trading platforms so definitely check it out and if you have any questions let me know hope to see you guys out there thanks for coming bob really good insight today really good points to have 
Jim, anything you've got coming up or any closing thoughts you want to plug, Jim, please do. I'll start by just echoing uh, everybody else's comments. But I mean, I think what a time to be alive, right? Uh, Bob, get Bob and Elliot and, and Joseph and Pedro and last pair, all, you know, this kind of expertise in one forum for free, I, I you know, I, it's, it's incredible. So, um, so first of all, yeah, thanks for including me in, in that bunch uh, too. Um, you know, I really, uh, I really think it's important to note, you know, we knew about COVID, right, uh, in late December, early January, market continued to rally and reach new highs for a, uh, for a month and a half. People forget about that. Um, you know, the, the decline uh, of 29% that we saw, uh, you know, a historic decline in a month from Fed expiration, literally the day after Fed expiration to March, the day after March expiration, was made possible by your friends in the options markets. Um, March, uh, you know, expiration was incredibly uh, under hedge relative to Fed. They bled all the, the hedges and then they, they crashed the market. Um, it is the, you know, it is not necessarily the cause of a decline, um, but it is the tinderbox, it is the gasoline on the floor, as I've said, that makes things um, go boom. Um, and uh, there are plenty of sparks out there. Uh, you know, the market is looking for a weak spot in positioning, um, a stretching of the rubber band. The market stretching to the upside is, is uh, you know, is the thing that, that helps and the sentiment change that comes with it and everything that that happens in these, these types of rallies is exactly what needs to happen in order for things to go boom in the night. So um, a rally is, is not, should not be frustrating to a, a bear. It should be a, a place to look for opportunities and changes in sentiment and positioning uh, for an opportunity. Uh, the key is looking at that, that macro landscape. So that's my last piece of advice. And then uh, if anybody wants to kind of follow what we do here at Kai Volatility, you know, we have several funds, check us out at kaivolatility.com. If you want to, Follow what we're putting out uh, recently, kaivolatility.com backslash news. And again, thanks thanks for having me. And thanks as always for coming, Jim. It's 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 pretty necessary to have the folks that are up here today up here for these because their insights and their expertise in this these areas is absolutely priceless. So if you're not following all of the speakers today, including Pedro, who had to leave at PDA Costa, please do. For those of you that came in late, you did not miss anything at all. This will be released later today as an Unusual Whales podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts.